Having finished our series on following Jesus, I'd like us to start a new series on the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5 verses 22 to 23 are some of the the most well-known verses in the Bible. The title of today's sermon is Don't Confuse Works with Faith. And that might not immediately sound connected to these verses, these verses 22 and 23, but there is a connection. When we read, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We normally think that the verse ends there, but it doesn't. Paul says, against such things there is no law. I'm using the ESV because it's quite helpful today when we're looking at more than just these two verses, the wider context of Galatians. The more literal interpretation is is more helpful at times, and this is one of those times. But these these are delightful words. Who doesn't want more love, joy, and peace? Although it's often a bit of a struggle to have more patience more kindness, more goodness, and so on, towards others, and self-control in ourselves. <coughs> but at the end of that, against such things there is no law. What on earth is Paul talking about there? Why does he throw that in at the end of this lovely verse? This week we'll look at the content of the letter as a whole which was largely about how not to and how to approach the whole topic of law. The letter to the Galatians was primarily about the problem of misuse of the law. Next week we'll start looking at the actual verses, love, joy, peace, and just focus on those. But this week we're just trying to provide a wrapper to show the context in which these verses are set. The reason he mentions law at the end of Galatians 5 verse 23 is that the whole of the letter tackles the issue of works of law versus faith in Christ and how works relate to faith and the different roles that works have for those who are unbelievers on the one hand and how works function for us once we've come to Christ after we've trusted in Christ and be made right with God by faith apart from works. It's a bit complicated. (laughs) Theologians still struggle over it. There are many diverging views on the role of works in the Christian life, in the Jewish life before Christ came. But we'll try not to get bogged down with that. Some churches have a very faulty view of works. It's they preach justification by faith, but they almost live a form of works. For example, if you ever visit a church where there's an unwritten code that you have to wear a suit and a tie if you're a guy, and a skirt and a hat if you're a woman. I remember when we first moved back here from from London that I was visiting one church one Sunday evening and the guy at the door outside was almost like 
not so much welcoming me in as if to say, do you want to come in as if you're not dressed right? <laughs> Are you sure you want to come in? At least that's how it felt. And many people have found this problem that it's not just being accepted as part of the church that you have to conform to certain rules. But if you want to even hear the gospel, you have to conform to the culture, the church culture, before you even hear that there is good news. For many churches, the dress code is one of those unwritten laws that needs to be obeyed, among other things. But Peter and Barnabas, as we read in Galatians, fell into the same problem that there were there were people who were who'd come down from Jerusalem, apparently Jewish believers, but believers who had got they were justified by faith, they were God's people, but they'd got a mistaken view of how the law of Moses applied in the New Testament era. They were mixing the old covenant with the new covenant. They were mixing works with faith, which is wrong in any covenant. And these people had come down and even Peter and Barnabas had fallen for their error. And they were requiring people to follow the laws of Moses in order to be accepted in the church. Today we could add more things than just what you wear. The need to not smoke or drink alcohol. The need to accept a dominant political position in in churches in order to be accepted for here, nationalists often need to accept a, a unionist political position when, if they're going to try to be accepted in <clears throat> evangelical churches in the Protestant community. Or in, in the United States, if a Democrat wants to hear the gospel, they're almost required to accept a Republican political outlook in order to be accepted in church. It's, it's the same old world over. There are many unwritten laws that churches impose upon people. We don't want to be in the situation where we fall into that same trap. We don't want to impose things on, on people which are anything other than the cross, faith in Christ. We don't want to present obstacles to people coming to faith. So it's useful even in our own lives, even if it's not in church life, even if it's our own lives, we can, we can say, I'm not right with God because I'm not doing something. It's useful to be reminded not to confuse works with faith in terms of our acceptance before God. In order to see what we can learn for our situation, let's look at what happened back there 2,000 years ago and what Paul had to deal with. Firstly, the Judaizers had infiltrated the church in Galatia. That is, that term Judaizers, as Paul uses it, and as others use it, in this sense, means that not that they were calling people back to Judaism, but that Christians who came from a Jewish background were adding some Jewish practices into their Christianity. And culturally, that's fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with doing that. Uh, there's many Messianic Jews have a sort of a, a Passover celebration meal that 
it's a cultural thing for them. But when we make it a salvation thing, that's when Paul comes down hard against it. These believers were saying in effect that you can't really be a proper Christian unless you were doing this and that and the other at the same time. Well, the thing that they are mentioned specifically for was circumcision. It seems that that is uh, uh, just the headline topic that maybe some other things fell under as well. Even Peter and Barnabas were taken in by the pious sounding teaching that you need to, if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to do this and this and this. But Paul opposed them. He writes, but when Cephas or Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eaten with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, that is the Judaizers. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Earlier in his letter, that was in chapter 2. Earlier in his letter, he'd written some of the harshest words he'd written to anybody that we have recorded in the New Testament. After the standard introduction of who the letter's from and who it's to and a message of grace, normally you, you would say something positive about those people who, who are receiving the letter. But Paul skips that. He doesn't have anything positive to say. Instead, he says... I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a contrary gospel, a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Those are harsh words. He's saying, you've lost the faith. You've turned away from the gospel. Imagine a visiting preacher coming into our church and saying to us a powerful message that you have, you have lost it. You have, you have turned away from Christ. You have abandoned the gospel. That's what Paul is saying here to the church in Galatia. Why does he speak so harshly against this group? They were telling people they needed to be circumcised and likely follow, follow other traditions from the law of Moses as well. Why does he oppose them so much? The topic of works is still debated today. And for many Bible-believing Christians, even for evangelicals, the relationship is straightforward in theory. We're, we're justified by faith apart from works. Romans 3 Works don't play any role in us getting right with God. But at the same time, we can add works in by the back door. We can keep our statement of faith, okay, but what we do actually says a different thing. On the one hand, Paul is absolutely right to speak so harshly to Peter and those who are in the church in Galatia. But on the other hand, I think we... We can have a little bit of sympathy with them, with Peter and Barnabas and the others there. After all, <clears throat> we're looking at this from the vantage point of no one. Of course that's wrong. 
because Paul has told us it's wrong. We know from the the the, the councils of the the church, we know from the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed at the time of the early church, we know from the confessions of faith at the Reformation, so much that has been clarified for us that we're looking back and saying, look at them, they got it wrong, they should have known better. But at that time, they hadn't got the, the, the benefit of all these church decisions, all this knowledge, all this clarification. They were a little bit in the dark. They should have known better. There had previously been a church council in Jerusalem that says all the Gentiles need to do is trust in Christ by faith. And they added a couple of things like just live a moral life. But the main thing was faith in Christ. You don't need to follow the law of Moses. They should have known better. But they hadn't got the full clarity that we have now looking back. If the church in Galatia had done these things a year later after Paul had spoken to them, he would have come down even much harder on them because they were they would have been doing them wrong after they'd been told what was right and wrong. But up to this point nobody had really clarified it to them. So you can have a bit of sympathy with Peter and Barnabas. But it still doesn't make it right. Paul didn't have an easy task, however, trying to sort out the problem of how to deal with works of law in general, or even works of the law of Moses in particular. (coughs) There are two aspects in which works need to be dealt with. There's the aspect of our relationship with God. Do our works get us right with God? And then there's the aspect of the history of works. The role of works in the Old Covenant and the Old Testament versus the role of works in the New Covenant, the New Testament. And you can confuse the whole thing. You need clear thinking, and Paul brings clear thinking into this situation. The Ten Commandments... They condemn us before we come to Christ because we've all sinned. They make it clear that we need another way of being righteous. We need a righteousness which comes by faith. And then we're reconciled to the Father through faith. And that applied to people in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant as much as under the New. Abraham was justified by faith, not by works, Paul tells us in Romans 4. So that is a timeless thing that we're not justified by works, but by faith apart from works. But then, in the New Testament era, we receive the Holy Spirit in a way which people didn't in the old. But that's more to do with the gifting of the Spirit. In the old, they had the fruit of the Spirit just as much as in the new. When it comes to the law of Moses, the Old Testament rituals were no longer necessary once Christ had come. They actually pointed forward to Christ. They were the signposts to Christ. So, works do not save. Only faith saves. 
works in the Old Testament of the law of Moses, the general sacrificial system pointed to Christ. And now we have Christ, we don't need that anymore. Paul's main point is works of law do not save or sanctify. What we can do isn't enough. Tom Allen, a preacher, writes that he took his daughters, Abby and Flannery, out for something fun to drink. Abby got an apple juice and Flannery got a mango surprise. Despite my insistence, he wrote, that I would pay, my daughters were prepared to be generous with the contents of their piggy banks. And as we were walking up to the counter, one of them said, I want to pay for mine. But he said, no, daddy's going to get it. But she insisted, no, I'm paying for mine. So the the shop assistant says, okay, that's, he's in America, that's $2. And the daughter pulls out all her change and puts it up on the counter. She's only 80 cents. That's not enough, the clerk said. He says, his other daughter said, tugging on his jumper, he says, I'd like you to pay for mine. (laughs) Sometimes we're like that first daughter. We want to bring what we have to the table before God, but it's not enough. Our good works are not good enough. But he offers us the righteousness of Christ. He offers us grace. And that is good enough. And we need to choose not what we do, but what he provides for us. Paul makes the case in Galatians 2 that works play no role in being accepted by God. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. There's no word that in the Greek. So in Galatians, up until the middle of Galatians chapter 3, Paul just talks about law, not the law. One of the things I've learned in Greek is that very often where you're talking about a noun, you'll often put the word the equivalent in Greek in front of it. Even when you're not talking about a specific thing. If you're talking about law, you'll probably talk about the law. You'll add the, the, the definite article in front of the word. That was just done as a matter of course when they were just talking about things in general not specific but when you don't have that particular word the the definite article in front of the word law in Greek you're going against the whole tradition of talking about it in general with that so it's a particular point that you're not talking about it in terms of the law if you leave out that def- that article the <clears throat> you're talking about law in general We know that a person is not justified by works of law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And and the point there is that people interpret the law as being the law of Moses, but Paul is talking about law in general. So So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of law. But because by works of law, no one will be justified. And a few verses later he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through law, then Christ died for no purpose. (coughs) 
He quotes Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2.4 in Galatians 3.11 to show that being justified by faith was an Old Testament concept as well. But the righteous shall live by his faith. In Romans he talks about, in, in Romans 4, he talks about Abraham having been justified by faith. To summarize Paul's argument, since works of the flesh, keeping the letter of the law, obeying the law in the strength of a sinful nature cannot save. Since these things, since works of law are no good when it comes to salvation, they serve no purpose in making us right in terms of our sanctification, works of the flesh. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for as written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Only those who are true believers receive the the gifts of the spirit. They don't always receive the fruit of the spirit. And we receive that by faith. One of the things that Paul talks about, and he hints at it here, and he's sort of building his argument. Galatians was written quite a number of years before the letter to the Romans. And if you've ever had to write um, an article or an essay or something, your first draft is never as good as your final draft. And in some respects, what Paul writes in Galatians, although it is God's word, it's true, it's still an early draft It's not explained in as much detail as he does later in Romans. There, he talks about being under grace instead of being under law in Romans chapter 6. We're not going to go through the whole of what Paul argues across Galatians 2 to 4. But just to note that he teaches that the law of Moses was intended to foster faith. The sacrificial system pointed forward to the ultimate true sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. But he also shows that using the law wrongly as a way of being self-righteous, bringing what we've got to God, as sinners, that doesn't work. Today, if we take our eyes off of Jesus, instead focus on legalism or law-keeping, keeping the letter of the law or however we want to describe it, turning from Christ to do these things instead. That is a dangerous thing to do. It's a rejection of Christ and his righteousness that comes through faith. That's why Paul writes, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obliged to keep the whole law like the little girl who was saying, I can do this, but it's not enough. Maybe saying, Daddy, can you add what you've got to it to make it okay? And Daddy said, no, it's either you'd pay for it or I pay for it. If we're going to have a little bit of law, we need to go with the whole hog and just say, okay, we're going to depend on having kept the whole law. We can't do that. He concludes, you're severed from Christ, you who will be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. 
we could say today that if people have to accept a political outlook, a dress code, rules about smoking or drinking, or any other form of legalism, in order to be accepted in church, that's a form of keeping law. In order to be accepted before Christ, if we have to do certain things in order to be right with God, then that's law-keeping. That's what Paul condemns. Once we've come to faith in Christ, once we've come to God by his grace, we then should naturally do what is right. But then we do that after having come to him by faith. We don't come to him by a mixture of faith and works. In Romans 6, Paul says, Sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under law but under grace. You're either relating to God by one or the other. It's not a mixture of both. And if you're going by keeping some laws, well, go the whole hog and relate to God by your own righteousness instead of Christ. And that'll get you nowhere. Instead, Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't relate to God on the basis of we're doing this, we're doing that. Aren't we good enough? That's slavery under, under law. In Christ Jesus, there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. These count for, don't count for anything, but only faith working through love. Works don't count for anything in terms of who we are before God. It's faith, being justified by faith, that matters. And this works itself out when we love others. Faith working itself through love was actually a very debated phrase at the time of the Reformation, and still is. Some say that, yes, faith works through love, and it's those works that make us right with God that are spurred on by faith. But no that's just another way of trying to say it's works and faith that get us right with God. But it's, it's either law or grace. What Paul is saying is that grace is how we relate to God. And that results in works of love. Works of love are the result of being accepted before God by faith. The fruit of the Spirit is the evidence of having been accepted by faith alone. The fruit of the Spirit is not the basis of our righteousness. We are not saying, we've come to Christ, we therefore do the works of the Spirit, therefore we are good enough in God's presence. No. We come to faith in Christ, and we are good enough in God's presence because we are given the gift of righteousness. We are fully accepted before we do even one work. on the basis then of being accepted by God's grace, of being righteous in Christ, we then are free to not have that burden of, have you done it right? Are you accepted? We are free to walk in the power of the Spirit and the strength that the Spirit gives. 
we're fully accepted before God if we have placed our faith in Christ, regardless of how we dress, regardless whether we've given up smoking yet, regardless of whether we drink. So it's not good to get drunk, but Jesus converted water into wine. There's nothing wrong with drink per se, but there is with getting drunk. We're fully accepted before God, regardless of, well, to add a few more things, whether we can speak in tongues or not. Pentecostalism, classical Pentecostalism, says unless you can speak in tongues, you're not a Christian. For others, unless you believe a certain view of the millennium, well, you can't be a Christian. You can't be part of our church. And now the internet is full of all kinds of things that appear to be true, but actually they're just enslaving people. You need to do this. You need to follow this. You need to believe this. Legalism or law-keeping or conspiracy theories are just another yoke of slavery on people. Promising salvation if we follow those things. But actually they're just taking us away from Christ. Instead, Paul says that we must live by the Spirit. For you are called to freedom, brothers, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We are freed from the slavery to the sinful nature, the flesh. We are freed in order to walk in the spirit. He says, but I say walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. There are two ways to relate to God. By law or by grace. By works or by faith. By walking in the flesh or walking in the spirit. By trying to obey the letter of the law or trying to obey God in the strength of the Spirit as following Christ. So if you have the Spirit, Paul is saying, if you have the Holy Spirit, then you're not under law. If you have the fruit of the Spirit, if you have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and so on. That's totally different from relating to God under law. Against these things there is no law. He says in verse 23 of chapter 5. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. Against such things there is no law. So, Are we saying that the law is completely jettisoned? We don't need it at all? No. What we're saying is we don't need the law in order to be right with God. Because we're sinners, it doesn't work. But the law still is useful. The the moral law, the Ten Commandments, is still useful. Just as when it was originally given, it still applies today. The essence of the Ten Commandments is still applicable to us today. To show us our sin as 
unbelievers to show us our need to turn to Christ. When Jesus was talking to certain individuals, like the rich young ruler, he used the law to highlight the fact that this rich young ruler was idolatrous. His money meant more to him than God. To the person who says, who is my neighbor? Jesus told him the parable of the good Samaritan to show him that he wasn't loving his neighbor as he ought to. Jesus used the law to highlight people's sin so that they would then trust by faith. That's the first purpose of the law that the reformers made clear. They had three uses of the law. The first was to show us we need another way of being righteous. The second purpose of the moral law, the Ten Commandments, is that in general it has a positive effect on society. When people are told don't murder, don't steal, and people don't murder and don't steal, it has a positive impact on society as a whole. It stops the slide to anarchy. The third use of the law is that for believers, it gives us a guide as to how we ought to live. We ought to love God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength. The first of the, the Ten Commandments. This first set. The second set of the Ten Commandments is all about loving your neighbor as yourself. And we ought to love others as ourselves. So the Ten Commandments still has a, an impact on our lives. We don't use them to get right with God, but once we're right with God, it becomes a way of living. So that's the moral law of the Ten Commandments. What about the whole law of Moses, including all the sacrifices. Well, although the Ten Commandments still apply from Old Testament to New Testament, all through time, the law of Moses had an expiry date. And its expiry date was when Christ died on the cross, around that period. Maybe Pentecost, if, if you draw the line slightly differently. But the law of Moses, in terms of the sacrificial system, was pointing to the cross. And now that we've got the cross, we don't need the pointer. Imagine two people who are a husband and wife who are separated, well, by distance. The husband's off working somewhere, or the wife's off working somewhere. And imagine it's before the internet where you have video calls. All you have is a photograph of the person. And you put the photograph up on the kitchen... Just to remind yourself what they look like and they're going to come home to you and you're going to look forward to seeing them in person. And the photograph serves that purpose until they come home. Once they come home, you don't ignore them and keep looking at the photograph. And that's the law of Moses as well. Once, once Christ had come, there was no point in looking to the law of Moses to point to Christ. If Christ was was there and the law of Moses was here and this was pointing to Christ and we turned away from Christ to the law of Moses, we wouldn't be actually looking to the law of Moses for the thing that it was there for. We would actually be looking to it for legalism, for the letter of the law, not the purpose of the law. And that's what the Judaizers were doing. That's why living by the law of Moses after Christ had come was so wrong. Whereas before 
he had come, the law pointed forward to him. So, if you're a believer today, you're no longer under the yoke of slavery, of trying to be right with God by the things that you do, under law, by your works. As sinners, that that standard was impossible for us. We're not justified by works. We're justified by faith, by God's grace. Let's not go down that road of depending on works. Let's not go down the road of either saying to God, I'm good enough because of my works, or of saying to God, I can't come into your presence because I've done these works. I've sinned. Our sins are all forgiven. The cross has covered them all. Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, there's much that's good in it, a few things he goes over the top. But there's one phrase that is really good. He says, there's nothing you can do as a believer. There's nothing you can do that will make God love you anymore. And there's nothing that you can do to make God love you any less. It's about what Christ has done. Atoned for our sin on the cross. He lived a sinless life. These are the basis of our relationship with the Father. So let's trust in Christ. Enjoy the freedom we have of being right with God through faith in Christ alone. Works do not condemn us anymore. Works shouldn't bring us back into a slavery. Let's walk in the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, obeying God's commandments in the strength that the Spirit gives. Not in order to be right with Him, but in the joy of having already been right with Him. If we live by the Spirit, let's also keep in step with the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that You have done it all. You did the works of living a righteous life, a perfect, sinless life. And that righteousness, your your obedient life, that righteousness is given to us by faith. But also, you're atoning for sin. You dealt with the unrighteous works that we have done on the cross. And that atonement is given to us by faith. Lord, help us to enjoy this wonderful gift of being righteous through faith in Christ. Help us, Lord, not to fall back under the the yoke of slavery where works dominate or control our relationship with you. But, Lord, help us to walk in the freedom that we have and help us to do the works that you want us to do in the freedom we have, in the power of the Spirit. Encourage us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.